Good morning, SunWest. Who's excited for the apocalypse? Some of you who weren't here last week are like, what is he talking about? Um, the apocalypse is actually good news. And in our, in our world, in our culture, uh, the word has gotten a bad rap because we misunderstand what it means. When we hear the word apocalypse, we think, oh no, what's going to happen? This sounds like bad news. Uh, but the word apocalypse actually doesn't mean bad news. It simply means the unveiling, the unboxing, uh, seeing something that you previously didn't see but was there, but you didn't see it. It was behind a curtain. Uh, and so the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is an apocalypse. It's, it's pulling back the curtain. No matter, regardless of what we're seeing in our world around us, uh, the, the book of Revelation is showing us that there's more uh, going on than what's, what we see. There's more at work than what it seems. Uh, and this is, this is good news, uh, because as the curtain gets pulled back, we, really, we, we realize that the apocalypse, and this is the title of the book, is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. It's the apocalypse by Jesus Christ. It's the apocalypse about Jesus Christ. And so when we pull back the curtain, regardless of, we, of what we see uh, in the world around us, we realize the truth that Jesus is uh, sitting on the throne, that Jesus rules, that Jesus is, is king, uh, that even when this world looks like it's unraveling and unwinding, uh, that God has not forgotten about us. Uh, and so this apocalypse is a good news uh, apocalypse, uh, and that's why we're spending some significant time in the book of Revelation. We started last week, and last week was kind of a foundation. First three weeks kind of are, but particularly last week was a foundation for the, the series and how we approach the book uh, the context of the book, how we read it without uh, falling into ditches and misinterpreting it. And so if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and, and watch it just because it's a good uh, basis uh, for everything that we're doing. Uh, Ken will mention this, but I'll, I'll just mention it uh, to you as well. These books are just intended uh, for you to kind of bring with you on Sundays. Uh, and there's, it's simply the biblical text. So we, we don't want to think, we don't want you to think that this is, there's more in it than there is. It's the Bible. That's all it is. Uh, with a blank page on the other, the opposite side, every page for you to take notes. And so we just, uh, we're using the same translation that this is printed in, it's the New Living Translation. And so you can purchase that uh, for eight loonies, uh, four toonies, or eight tenths of ten dollars, uh, which, whichever you prefer. And you can pick that up and bring it with you and take notes uh, as we go through uh, this series. Uh, and there's a lot to go through. Uh, so just really quickly, some uh, just remind us of the context, the historical context of the book. Most likely written in around 96 AD, uh, there was persecution that was going on in the Roman Empire towards followers of Jesus for quite some time. Uh, began quite more intensely, started intensely in 67 AD uh, under Emperor Vespasian. Uh, Jerusalem was destroyed in AD 70. Uh, and by the time that this book had been written, Peter and Paul uh, had been crucified. Timothy had been murdered. Uh, these are followers of Jesus, major church leaders in the early church. Uh, but in AD 92, around the area where this book was written, uh, things gotten worse. Things got worse. Uh, Domitian was emperor, uh, and he was even more of a tyrant than those emperors that were before him. And he uh, kind of instituted this thing across the Roman Empire that people ought to worship him. Uh, he didn't care if people worshipped other gods. He just wanted to be included among the gods. And so he had temples that were set up uh, where people in the Roman Empire were to go. Uh, they were to sprinkle incense uh, over the altar and say, Caesar Kyrios, which means Caesar is Lord. And so Domitian didn't care, again, whether you worshipped other gods. He just cared that you also worshipped him. Uh, and refusal to worship him uh, had significant consequences. Uh, but this is how they kept the peace in Rome. As long as everybody bowed their knee to Caesar, uh, then he was able to remain in control and keep peace and make everybody happy. Uh, except it wasn't so happy if you didn't want to worship Caesar. Uh, so that's the bit of the context that the book is written in. Uh, and it's a confusing book because people often don't understand the type of literature that the book is. So again, just a review. What kind of literature is it? It's a letter. Primarily, it's a letter. It was a letter written by a pastor to churches uh, that he cared about, that he had influence about. Uh, so John uh, 
was given a vision from Jesus uh, that he wrote down to give to the churches that he cared about. And we see this right at the beginning of the book, that this is a letter from John to the seven churches. We're going to be looking at those seven churches over the next two weeks. Uh, But this is the first thing that we need to recognize, that this piece of literature, this book in the Bible, was a letter intended for seven churches. It's also a prophecy, and prophecy is primarily about calling the church to live in a certain type of way. Sometimes we think prophecy is about predicting the future. It can mean predicting the future, but even when it is about predicting the future, it's predicting the future so that we can live in light of what we know. The primary urge of a prophecy is to create a certain response or behavior. And so it's a prophetic word to the churches, uh, encouraging them, compelling them to live in a certain way in light of what was going on in the world around them. Uh, and it's an apocalypse, which is a, not just a word that means unveiling, but it's a type of literature in which uh, Revelation is one book among many that were written in this way. And in, in apocalypses share a lot of common characteristics Uh, People are often represented as animals. Historical events are often uh, shown or displayed in the form of natural uh, phenomenon. Uh, Colors and numbers have meaning. Uh, And apocalyptic literature seeks to do two things. To present the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. But more importantly and more primarily, to present the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. And so the book of Revelation wasn't just trying to encourage the church to live in some way because of what was going to happen some day down the road in the future. The book of Revelation was primarily written to the church to behave in a certain way today because of what was true today, because of who Jesus is today, because of what he's done uh, and where he sits today, which is on the throne, which we'll get to in week four, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So this book written to the seven churches uh, and Before we look into the seven churches, I want to talk about the number seven. So as we go through the book, we're going to hear lots of numbers, 666, 144,000. I know some of you are like, I can't wait till we get to to that week. Uh, A little bit down the road yet, so you have to wait. Uh, But we're going to learn as we go through the book how to read apocalyptic literature. And one of the things, as we mentioned, was that some numbers have, um, they mean something. They're symbols. Uh, And so there's... Uh, The number seven uh, shows up a bunch of times in this book. Uh, Why the number seven? Because for John and for the ancient world, the first century, uh, the number seven represented or symbolized completeness or fullness. So if you remember back to chapter one that we read last week, this is a letter to John to the seven churches. So these churches are historical, yes, But seven is also significant because in some ways it's saying to the complete church. In addressing these particular churches, these seven churches, it seems that John is also addressing the whole church, the complete church. Uh, And so when we read the encouragements, when we read the warnings, when we read the promises, it's not just for those particular churches, it's for the whole church. Uh, We read again here in the the same text uh, from the sevenfold spirit before his throne. And if, you, if you're not thinking, you know, apocalyptically in terms of how you read it, you might think, is there seven Holy Spirits? Uh, that's not what it's saying. Uh, it's saying the complete, in the fullness of the Spirit, the complete Spirit, uh, the complete presence and work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so this is what it means by the sevenfold uh, Spirit. You go a little bit further in chapter one, and we see uh, that the, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, And the seven lampstands, we see lots of sevens. Uh, The seven stars here represent the angels of the seven churches. And the word angels can actually mean messenger, could be human. Or the word angel can mean uh, an angelic being. If we look at the way the the word is used throughout the book of Revelation, it probably means a guardian angel, angelic being. Uh, Seven lampstands equal the seven churches themselves. Uh, And then we see that Jesus... So chapter one is giving us the context, right? So Jesus is in the middle. He's standing in the middle of the seven lampstands. And this is important because remember that this is written to a church who is wondering, where is Jesus? What's happened to his promises? That whole thing about his death and resurrection, about him being the king of kings and Lord of lords. And look at his church now, we're suffering. 
We're being persecuted. We're being forced to worship uh, Domitian. What is going on? And so John gives this apocalypse. He pulls back the curtain. And when he pulls back the curtain, we realize that Jesus is walking among his churches. He's not off in heaven somewhere else. He's not distant. He's actually right here. And this is the beginning of the apocalypse. That God, Emmanuel, is with us right here among his churches, in the middle of his churches. And so with that, John writes in chapters 2 and 3, specific message to seven different churches. Uh, And there's a few general things uh, about these messages. They're all written uh, in the same kind of form. We see that there's some kind of a dress from Christ who has a title uh, or images that were already shared in chapter 1, so they get repeated in chapter 2. There's a word of affirmation and rebuke. And so there's things that God affirms about the churches, and there's things that he rebukes about the churches, except there's no rebuke for Smyrna and Philadelphia, which we'll get to next week. Um, And there's no affirmation for Laodicea, which we'll also talk about next week. I'm leaving those ones for next week. Uh, And then there's a warning, uh, and then there's a promise. Uh, And so this is kind of the form that he gives to these seven churches. And we must uh, keep these churches and the messages to the churches on the front of our mind, because as we go through the book of Revelation, the rest of the book is really saying the same things that God is saying to the seven churches. So all of the images we're going to see, you know, those seven horns and those beasts and those dragons and all the things that we're about to witness as we go through the book, uh, it's a way that God is actually re-saying the same things that he says in the first three chapters of his book, The Messages to the Churches. And so John writes this vision that's given to him by God to these seven churches, uh, and you can see where they're located here, and this is Uh, This is the direction they would have been delivered because this was the order that the mail carrier would have gone uh, from the island of Patmos where John is uh, to deliver this letter through there. Uh, And again, these seven churches embody the issues that every church has faced in every era throughout history. There's nothing new that we're experiencing, I believe, that hasn't somehow been experienced or wrestled with at some point in history and particularly with these seven congregations that John is addressing. And so their story is our story. And so then, just to warn you, we're going to cover a lot of content in a very, hopefully, short amount of time. Uh, And so you could probably get overwhelmed and be like, oh, that's a lot of information. Uh, I want to remind you that it's not just information, but what they're wrestling with, what uh, what Jesus is addressing through John's letter, is the same things that you and I are wrestling with as we struggle to follow Jesus today in our time. Uh, and so for the sake of time, I just, I'm going to kind of group these challenges in three kind of big groups. Uh, there's uh, a group of churches that are struggling with assimilation. So they're, they're taking on the ethos or the values of the surrounding culture or they're rejecting it or that's their, their main kind of struggle. There's a group of churches struggling with compromise or an apathy trying to find middle ground between faith and cultural pressures uh, and just kind of live in the middle and not, uh, yeah, not kind of pick a side. Uh, There's churches that are undergoing persecution and they're experiencing suffering because of their faithfulness uh, to Jesus. And so there's kind of three kind of main messages among these uh, seven churches. And so we're going to look broadly kind of at the first group, the group that was wrestling with assimilation into culture, taking on cultural ethos or values, and so we begin with the church, Thyatira. Everybody say Thyatira. Isn't that a fun one to say? Um, and so this is what the text says. It says, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance. Right? So remember the affirmation part. And I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. So that's the affirmation. Now there's a rebuke. But I have this complaint against you. 
You are permitting that woman, the Jezebel who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. So I should have mentioned, I'm doing these churches in the reverse order. Okay, so uh, you start at the end of chapter two, and then I'm going to work my way back to the beginning of chapter two. Um, She does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to you, give to each of you whatever you deserve. Uh, Welcome to church, right? These are harsh words there. Uh, But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira, who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. I will ask you nothing, nothing more of you, except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. Which again, remember we talked about there was... Uh, a couple hundred references to the Old Testament. Uh, that reference right there is, is Psalm 2, but they're littered throughout the book of Revelation. Uh, they will have the same authority I received from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the seven, to, to the churches. Uh, so again, there's so much in there. We don't have time to go through all of them. Uh, I'm hoping that I give you just enough tools that you can kind of dig in, uh, even on your own. Uh, and I'm going to spend the least amount of time on this particular church, in part because uh, scholars know the least about this, this church. Um, and so it's the most mysterious of the seven churches. Uh, Thyatira, we know, was the center of worship of, uh, for Apollo. Uh, both Apollo and Caesar were acclaimed son of Zeus. Emperor Domitian named his son, son of God, on his coins. And so... Uh, on all of his coins, he had the phrase son of gods. And so, the, so these were being uh, used in the, the Roman Empire. And Domitian's sons on the coin were actually portrayed as holding the seven, seven stars on the coin. And so you'll see there's lots of references, cultural references, like we talked about last week, not only to the Old Testament, but also to the Roman Empire. Uh, and so when Jesus refers to himself as holding the seven stars, right, there's a clash of kingdoms even right there. Um, and so this probably explains why Jesus speaks of himself, particularly uh, to this church as the son of God, uh, putting himself up and against uh, Domitian's claim that his kids were the son of God was a roundabout way of saying that he was God. Uh, so Thyatira was a prosperous commercial center, and there was a, a home of a number of different trade guilds. And so people would come in, coming together doing different trades of different resources. And this created actually quite a bit of a dilemma for the early church. Why was that? Uh, Because in amongst the economic world was was the religious world. They didn't have the compartments maybe in the same way that we do today. Everything was kind of meshed together. And so the commercial world, the economic world uh, was very much steeped in the religious worship world. Uh, And so for, for people, for Christians to actually participate in the trades, they would have had to participate in meals, uh, meals where they were eating food that was sacrificed to idols. They would have had to participate uh, in activities that were revolving around uh, the different altars to different gods. Uh, remember, they had lots of different gods uh, and they had lots of different altars. Uh, and so different re- regions, different uh, cities had different altars to different uh, gods. And so they would have had to participate in this religious worship world in order to participate in the economic and business world at the time. Uh, We see that there's a reference to Jezebel in in this, uh, which the the person that's referenced as Jezebel likely wasn't named Jezebel, but it's a reference to the Old Testament. Uh, And Jezebel was a queen in the Old Testament. She was the daughter of King of Tyre. She worshiped Baal. King Ahab, uh, who was the Israelite king, married her, and she became a powerful force in government and imported her worship into the nation of Israel. She brought 850 prophets with her. uh, And so Ahab and Jezebel married, and as they married, uh, these different worship uh, 
practices, the different religions actually married together. And so Jezebel had a public argument that one could worship Baal right alongside of Yahweh, right alongside of God, that you could worship multiple gods. See, Jezebel's way is a way of compartmentalization. Have God over here, and then over here you can have your other idols. You can have your Baal. You can have your business, your family, your hobbies, your pleasures. Jezebel says you can have everything. Just add Jesus, add God to what you're already doing. I mean, in this time, they practiced what we call idolatry, where they had different statues and gods, and they would worship at physical altars. And you might think, well, we don't have idolatry today. That's not an issue for us today. It was just an issue back then, right? We may not have altars and statues and temples, but an idol is anything that actually becomes an ultimate thing. And the reality is that there's only room for one ultimate thing in your life, or else it wouldn't be ultimate, right? So this is essentially what idolatry is, is elevating something to become an ultimate thing. And sometimes they can be inherently evil and terrible, and sometimes they can actually be good, but you make a good thing an ultimate thing, and then it becomes evil. It becomes an idol. We may not have the God of Artemis, but we still have sexuality. We may not have the God of Mars, who's the God of war, but we still put our trust in military for power and security. We may make our family the ultimate thing. We may make financial security the ultimate thing. We may make our careers or our hobbies an ultimate thing. See, the way of Jezebel and the warning to the church of Thyatira was that you can just add Jesus as one more thing that you're worshiping amongst everything else that you worship in your life. And the temptation of the people in Thyatira was to, to actually just make their worship of Jesus a Sunday thing and compartmentalize it and then go about the rest of their week and do business as usual. In fact, it didn't matter if they were uh, disobeying God and their business practices because, because God happened on Sunday and I do my work and my business the rest of the week. And so Jesus is challenging the spirit to the church of Thyatira and saying, Jesus is the ultimate thing. This is the apocalypse, that Jesus is on the throne. And he can't just be compartmentalized into one part of your life. He wants to become your whole life. And when we read that, this text through that lens, we realize it's not just an issue for Thyatira, it's also an issue for us. Because uh, we have all sorts of idols in our lives. And many of us are here because we're at least curious about Jesus, but some of us profess to be followers of Jesus. Uh, and yet the affections of our heart, the, re the, the resources of time and money that we, we give uh, maybe financially or even mentally um, go to so many things. And so the question is, what, what do we truly worship? And is Jesus just one thing that we try and add on the side, or is he actually the ultimate thing? We're going to come back to some of these themes. We're going to move on to the church in Pergamum. Everybody say Pergamum. All right. And this is what it says. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. So remember, there's an affirmation, things that they've done well. And then there's a rebuke. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who followed the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. And here's the promise. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. The symbol of Pergamum was a sword. Rome gave them the right to rule uh, by the sword, to inflict capital punishment 
Uh, I think Pergamum was one of the only cities that was, that was allowed to do that, to enact capital punishment. Uh, and so Jesus plays off this, if you notice, by talking about uh, coming with the sword of his mouth. And we'll notice as you get into the context of each of these cities that the images that Jesus is using are particular to those regions and those cities. Uh, Pergamum was engaged in a battle for the mind, and really the, battle of every, the outcome of every kind of battle is ultimately a battle of the mind. And Proverbs, it says, as people think within themselves, so they are. And so you notice the affirmation for the church in Pergamum was that they actually stood against uh, the ideas in the culture, the conflict uh, with God's revelation and Jesus Christ were being bombarded by the church from the outside. And the church in Pergamum actually did a pretty good job of uh, pushing back against those ideas that were in the culture. The problem was that there was ideas uh, that were in conflict with who Jesus was that were pressuring the church from the inside. They were, ho- they were commended for holding fast against the ideas in the culture, but uh, they failed to recognize that there was ideas actually within the church, uh, and they were losing ground on those. Uh, this city is referred to the city of Satan. Uh, there's a reference to the throne of Satan. Uh, and that's a pretty harsh word, don't you think? No? Uh, So this refers to uh, a temple uh, to the goddess of Zeus that was on top of the hill right outside of Pergamum, 800 feet above uh, the city. The sons of Zeus were sometimes referred to as demons. So other gods, sons of Zeus, were referred to as demons. And so uh, Zeus could be referred to as Satan or the father of demons. Uh, And so this is a particular word to Pergamum, uh, saying this is the city of Satan, where the throne of Satan is, the father of the demons, uh, the God of Zeus. Jesus says, I have a few things against you, because some of you hold to the teachings of Balaam. You also have some that hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Uh, repent, I'll get to those, uh, what those mean later. Uh, repent, he says, or else I'm coming to you quickly, and I will make war against you with the sword of my mouth. Repent or else. Why is Jesus so intolerant? In our days, tolerance is elevated as a great virtue, especially on moral matters and religious matters. Jesus presents himself in this letter and other letters as profoundly intolerant, which makes it hard for us to read some of these passages in our culture, no? Because we have a cultural value of intolerance. Why is Jesus so intolerant? Well, simply, Jesus loves the truth. And because he knows that any falsehood or lie or deception actually enslaves us, Jesus is actually not just passionate about the truth, but he's passionate about you and me. He doesn't want us to be enslaved. He doesn't want us to believe in lies and things that aren't true and find ourselves in the wake of our own destruction and our own choices, our own addictions. So Jesus is passionately intolerant because he's passionately, uh, he's, he's passionate about you and me. And we learn from this passage that tolerance is actually not a biblical virtue. Even though it's a cultural bi- virtue, it's not a biblical virtue. Patience is a bi- biblical virtue. Understanding is, Mercy is a biblical virtue. Humility is a biblical virtue. The church would do well to remember that, that humility is a biblical virtue. Love is a biblical virtue. Self-sacrificial love is a biblical virtue. These things are beautiful biblical virtues, but tolerance is not a biblical virtue. And yes, the church was intended to be inclusive. It's an inclusive community. We are all welcome. We read in the uh, elsewhere where Paul writes, uh, Jew and Gentile, free and slave, male and female, all people are welcome in the family of God. We're all welcome, but all of us are actually called then to bend our knee to the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, to Jesus. And you'll notice that with many of these messages, we're called to repent, which means to change our mind, to change our direction, to actually yield our will to the will of Jesus, who is the true king and true emperor. 
And so there's a reference to the teachings of Balaam and the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Uh, and these were essentially the same thing. Uh, one is the, the Nicolaitans is a Greek word. Balaam is a Hebrew word. Uh, and, and they're both referring to the same types of teaching. Uh, and it, it names them there primarily meat being sa- or eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And again, remember in that world, everything was kind of intertwined together. Uh, and so for many people, the meat that they were eating uh, was tied to the meat that was sacrificed to the different gods. And then the leftovers were given to, to people to eat at the temples. Uh, and this was uh, funding and participating in the acts of worship that were going on. And so this was a difficult scenario and dilemma for the followers of Jesus to figure out how to relate to that. Um, and then namely the other piece that was uh, being referred to in terms of the Nicolaitans and the, the, the teachings of Balaam uh, was sexuality. And it almost reads like Jesus is down on sex, like he's against sex, uh, which is not true. Uh, God created sex. He created us as sexual beings. And part of the reason that the, the text is so intolerant says he hates the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans is because of their misunderstanding of sexuality in the human body. The basic argument, which Paul also covers in Corinthians, is is that the body is just material. The body isn't sacred. It's just biological material. You do with your body whatever you want because it's your soul that matters. Sounds very contemporary, doesn't it? Paul argues against this in the book of Corinthians. And this this misunderstands the true nature of the body. The New Testament refers to the body as soma. Everybody say soma. Soma is not only material form, it's also imperishable form of the personality. So when when the Bible refers to your soma, it's not just referring to your material biological body. It's referring to your entire person, your personality, your real self, your whole self. And so the fact is that human beings do not have a soma. We are a soma. I do not have a body. I am a body. My body is not a house or a prison that my soul or my real self is trapped inside of. My body is my real self. Therefore, what I do to my body, I do to myself. What I do to my body, I do to me. My body may be my outer self and my soul, but the soma describes both of these things in concert together. Therefore, the act of sex, and this is what what Paul's referring to in Corinthians, it's it's more than biology. It involves the soma. It involves our whole self. That's why two people seldom feel the same way towards each other after they've had sex. They shared something more than biology. They shared their somas, their very persons. There's actually no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people might think about it. You know, our culture can tell us all they want that sex is casual and that our bodies are just material and that our souls are separate. But the reality is that the scriptures tell us differently, but experience also tells us differently. That the act of sex is a whole, it's a whole body act. It's physical and it's soul. Jesus is not down on sex. He actually has a higher view of sex than the first century culture and than our culture. He's calling the church in Pergamum and the church today to consider the cultural narrative that actually exists and resist it. To have a higher view of sexuality. Because for Pergamum and also for us, the the cultural understanding that is being talked about around sex sounds liberating, but it's actually enslaving. And this is why Jesus is so intolerant about it. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see the devastation when people act casually about sex that that creates in their life and the lives of other people. You know, the same challenges are, you know, exist within even the, the, the issue of pornography. You know, engaging with pornography is a sexual activity uh, that doesn't just affect you physically, but it affects you mentally, it affects your whole body. And I, and I, and I, I don't 
speak these things to actually create any shame. I'm just I'm speaking them to, to shed light on truth. We've all been hurt because of casual approaches to sexuality in some form. And so Jesus is intolerant about this because he wants ultimate freedom for us. And so he's challenging the church in Pergamum. And then he goes on to challenge the church in Ephesus. And this is what it reads. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Ephesus. This is the message from the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. I know all the things you do. I've seen your hard work and your patient endurance. I know you don't tolerate evil people. You have examined the claims of those you say they are apostles, but are not. You have discovered they are liars. You have patiently suffered for me without quitting. But I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or each other as you did at first. Look how far you've fallen. Turn back to me and do the works you did at first. If you don't repent, I will come and remove your lampstand from its place among the churches. But this is in your favor. You hate the evil deeds of the Nicolaitans, just as I do. You see, like, these teachings show up a a number of times, right? Uh, Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give fruit from the tree of life in the paradise of God. Ephesus was home to the Pan-Ionian Games. Uh, It was surpassed in grandeur only by the Olympic Games that were held in Athens, Ephesus was proud to be the home of the goddess uh, Artemis, um, or Diana as the Romans called her. Uh, She was the fertility god, the embodiment of sexuality, the embodiment of sexual lust, as signified by her many exposed breasts, often in the statues that were made of her. Uh, Her temple in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world at the time. And here's a picture, a model picture of what it uh, probably looked like. It was built on a platform measuring more than 100,000 square feet, uh, twice the size of a football field. It had 100 stone columns made of marble, each about 55 feet high. They built a temple to Domitian, who demanded to be worshipped as God, whom we know, but they were the first city that had done that. Uh, the city had an amphitheater that could hold 24,000 people. So this, the amphitheater they had was bigger than the Saddle Dome. Uh, come on, Calgary. 2,000 years ago, they had a bigger stadium than we have. Get with the program. Um, it was the center of business, of politics, of religious pluralism. It emerged as one of the most influential cities in the history of Christianity and one of the most influential cities at the time that this was written. The church was planted by the Apostle Paul and his co-workers Priscilla and Aquila. Timothy would later pastor at that church. Uh, Timothy would be uh, murdered. He would be martyred by the Romans. And then the Apostle John, uh, who wrote Revelation, would become the pastor of the first church in Ephesus. And an interesting fact about the church in Ephesus, it was uh, one of its longtime members was also Mary, the mother of Jesus. As you remember, at the end of the gospel, uh, John takes on uh, to take care of Mary. And so Mary uh, was part of the church in Ephesus. Uh, can you imagine having Mary at your Christmas Eve service? Who's going to play Mary this year in the pageant? Uh, <laughs> hey, Mary, how about you? Give us the real time, real deal. So the church in Ephesus was a significant church, founded by the Apostle Paul, pastored by Timothy, uh, pastored by John, the mother of Mary attended there. Uh, it was in the great, one of the greatest cities at the time who had a great amount of influence in the, the Roman world. And so it's a significant, significant church, significant place. Um, and so Jesus writes to this church in Ephesus and he says, I know all the things you do. And you can see that they're active. The church is buzzing with all sorts of doing, all sorts of ministry programs are going on. It's not just a social club's But members of the church are actively involved. All are working for the advancement of God's kingdoms together. There was many, many groups that were started every semester and they were thriving. They were going on missions trips to Mexico and El Salvador. They were running prayer ministries and hearing God seminars and set free retreats. People were coming to faith. There was lots going on in this church. There was five-star Google reviews and the the Instagram account looked really, really good. And they had many, many followers. This is the picture of the church in Ephesus. And when he looked on the outside and he looked at all the busy activity and everything that was happening, you think, what in the world could possibly be going wrong in that church? 
Well, Jesus did have a rebuke for them. Even though he affirmed so many of the things that were happening, he had a rebuke for them. He says, but I have this complaint against you. You don't love me or others as you did at first. And the actual Greek literally says, you have lost your first love. Most likely referring to the love they had for Christ. I have this against you, Jesus says. You have lost your first love. Jesus see throughs all the activity, all the classes, all the small groups, all the good teaching. And he sees something. He sees activity. He sees a church that, yeah, remained faithful in its culture, but a church that had just gone on, gone on to religious activity and habits that had lost touch with the heart of why they were doing those things in the first place. What is first love? Well, it's the love that you first experience. Uh, think of maybe a time when you fell in love. This is the phrase that's being referred to. You've lost your first love. Think of maybe when you first fell in love with Jesus, decided to follow him. Jesus saying you lost that. You're no longer in love with me the way you were at first. Affection and intimacy are gone. Yes, there's a lot of activity and we connect once in a while, but intimacy is gone. And throughout the Bible, relationship with God is likened to the relationship between a bride and a groom. In the Old Testament, God speaks of having found Israel and taking her as his bride. And when they're unfaithful, uh, when Israel is unfaithful to God, it refers to the image of them committing adultery. Jeremiah 2.2 says, I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me. In the New Testament, the church is referred to as Jesus' bride, married to him, redeemed for intimacy with him. I don't know if you've ever been in love before, uh, but you act a certain way when you're in love. I remember when I fell in love uh, with a girl uh, back in the day. Uh, her name was Lisa. Uh, we ended up getting married. Uh, but I remember uh, those beginning, the beginning year when we, we fell in love and I went off to camp uh, and we were separated from each other for four months, which my heart just ached. Be still my heart. You know, Lisa, she's always been a crocheter. And I thought, you know, how can I express my love to her? And when I was at camp... Uh, no word of a lie, I crocheted an entire Afghan blanket that when I saw her in person, I gave to her. This is, this is like my love offering. And so I would sit there at camp crocheting by myself, thinking of my love. It was a blue and pink bl blanket, her favorite color and my favorite color, brought together. It was beautiful. And then we got married. And I haven't crocheted a blanket since. You know, love, love makes you act a certain way. And so Jesus is saying, you've forgotten your first love. The intimacy that you had with me is gone. And so what do we do when we forgot our first love? Well, he gives us three things, and this is kind of uh, where I want to bring our attention as we close. He says, remember, recognize our condition. He says, look how far you've fallen. He's saying, remember where you were. Remember the heights to where you were. Remember that love that we had at first. Recognize how far you've fallen and then confess it. Jesus does not call us to beat ourselves up over this, nor does he call us to work ourselves up into some emotional state. He simply calls us to recognize that, hey, we're not where we once were. And then he says to repent, which is actually literally the word that's used. It's translated here in the New Living Translation as turn back, but it just means, repent means just to turn around, to stop, to make a radical U-turn in the, the street, to shift your focus back to him. And you know what, when I do marriage counseling or when, when I, I'm meeting with couples uh, that are, are struggling, uh, you know, part of the conversation naturally turns to how can we turn this around? How do we go back? And part of it is actually remember, remember what you used to do when you were dating and you used to love each other and you used to crochet blankets together. Remember that. The sense of this word is to, it, there's an urgency to it. You got to turn around. You got to change course. Change your mind is actually literally what it talks about, to change your mind and then live in a new direction. 
So remember where you were, repent to turn it around. And then he said, do the works you did at first to redo those things. Now imagine I told Lisa off. I got upset at her and I said something I shouldn't. Um, it's probably not hard for her to imagine, but let's the rest of us just imagine this happens. And then she wants an apology. And I respond by saying, no way. I don't need to apologize to you. When we got married, remember our vows? I said, till death do us part, and so did you. So because of that, you're stuck with me. You're committed to me no matter what. We made a covenant together. You would say, you're a terrible husband. Right? That's how you respond, right? It might technically be true that we're married, but what would happen in that relationship if there was no remembering, if there was no repenting, if there's no redoing? You would draw apart. The intimacy would be gone. The affection would be gone. You'd become functional roommates. So what Jesus is saying in many ways to the church in Ephesus is you're doing a whole bunch of activity. You're running around, you're taking the kids to sports and your life is busy and you're full, but you've actually forgotten to spend time with me. Remember the love you had at first. Repent, change direction. And then start to redo the things that you did at first. The things that you did when you were in love. To bring this analogy back to our relationship with God, obviously, what did you do when you fell in love with Jesus? How did you spend time with him? Are you spending time with him now? Do you create time each day to do devotions, to listen to his voice? Do you intentionally carve out time in your life, just not, on, not just on Sundays when we sing songs together, but to actually worship him and give him your affection? Do you pray? Do you tell him what you're feeling, what you're thinking? Now, part of the reason I wanted to end on the church of Ephesus is because I think in many ways this summarizes the response that all of the, church, the seven churches um, are invited to in some way, to remember, remember who Jesus is. To remember the love that we had and why we chose to follow him in the first place. And then if there's a gap there between how we're living and how uh, we first came to him, then we repent and we change direction. And then we begin to redo those things that we did at first. We worship him. We give him our time. We give him our affection. Because God just doesn't want our religious activity. He wants our hearts and our intimacy. So Jesus, we thank you for your word to these seven churches. Um, Lord, we know that they're hard words. Uh, but we also recognize, Lord, that uh, they're hard words that you give us because you love us uh, and you want intimacy with us. You want us to follow you with our whole heart, not just our half heart. And so, Lord, we remember what you've done. Remember how you loved us. Lord, we remember uh, maybe in our own stories those moments that we gave our hearts towards you because we loved you. Lord, we repent at how our hearts maybe become hard or become busy with religious activity that is all fine and good, but it actually misses uh, the heartbeat of what you want from us. And Lord, we commit to redoing the things that we did at first. To give you our hearts again. To spend time with you. To listen to your voice. Lord, I pray that we would be aware of your presence as we even move from this place this morning. Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would have an apocalypse, that you are near, that you are at hand, that you are right there waiting for our affection. My prayer is as we move through the book of Revelation, uh, we will 
come across uh, some very strong words like we read this morning. Uh, But they're coming from the heart of a God who loves us, a God who actually wants the best for us, a God who wants to see us overcome and thrive. And that's why you'll notice that each of those messages to the seven churches was to overcome, to become victorious, to persevere, to be faithful, to not give up, to not give in. Because God ultimately wants us to experience the fullness of life that he has for us. Uh, and so I pray uh, that this week as you, as you go, uh, that we would be mindful of the things that steal our affections in our lives. The things that we easily give our hearts towards. Maybe the good things that have become ultimate things. And that we would go back to the love that we had at first and say, Jesus, we want you to be the ultimate thing. So again, Father, we just thank you that you go with us. We thank you that your spirit is with us. Lord, we thank you for your covenant that remains even when we're unfaithful. But Lord, we don't want to live lives like that. We want to thrive in a relationship with you. We don't want to just be in covenant with you, Lord. We want to be in intimacy with you. And so, Lord, we remember what you've done. Lord, we repent and change direction where we need to. And we commit, Lord, to meeting with you and making you the center of our lives again. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, There are prayer teams available at the front after service. We invite you to come forward if you'd like prayer for anything. A reminder that there's booklets at the Welcome Center if you want to purchase one uh, to follow along with the series. Uh, Other than that, have a great week. We'll see you next week as we uh, finish the letter to the other four churches.